to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. The gentleman on my show today, I saw about two months ago at the Keswick Theater in uh, Glenside, Pennsylvania. And, you know, I knew he was a great musician and singer-songwriter, but what a storyteller. This guy was cracking people up. I mean, I had years of doing comedy, and he's funnier than half the acts I've worked with out there. He also has a, a new album recently came out called The Now and Evermore. And my friend Carrie Steuben saw him last night at the Beacon with Ringo Starr. And it turns out he's friends with two-time Cooper Talk guest Ray Abruzzo. And my guest is Colin Hay. How you doing, Colin? Good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing well. So, uh, yeah, I found out you knew Ray. I, I found out one time I, I was watching your documentary and I see Abruzzo pop in it. Yeah, he's. Um, I've known him for quite a few years now. He's. Um, I know he's a, a neighbor of sorts down there in Los Angeles. And uh, yeah, he's a great guy. We love. I love hanging out with Ray. And I just actually talked to him. Had a couple of little text messages from him just before. Now I got to ask you. I saw you at the Glenside Theater, and it was a great show. I must say, you were uh, very funny. A lot of f bombs. I enjoyed it. It was. It was very, very good time. What is it like for you now when after playing all those solo shows and telling stories, now you're playing with a band with Ringo. What's that like for you, the adapting to that culture somewhat? Well, you you do have to adapt. It's a, it's a whole different it's a different thing. For one thing, you know, it's Ringo's show, so you're you're really there to support him more than anything else. And uh and you're a side you're a side guy for everyone else, so you have to make sure you're, you know, you can figure out the parts to play and and somehow, um, you know, add to what has already been uh, hits for other people, whether it be Edgar Winter or Steve Lukather or Hamish Stewart or, or Ringham for that matter. So you find your place, you know, you find your place within that uh, within that group of people. But um, it comes it comes together pretty quickly and. Um, it's starting to. It's really starting to sound like a band now, which is which is really cool. But it's a different. Yeah, it's a different thing. It's a whole. It's a. You know, it's really all about Ringo. I mean, you know, you turn around and Ringo's playing the drums, and that really never gets old. Now, how did you hook up with Ringo? I mean, that must for any musician, it must be amazing to sit there and say, "Oh, I'm going to play with a Beatle." You know, I mean, you, you talked about it on on your show at Glenside, but how did the whole this relationship start with Ringo? Well, it starts in many ways um, the same way that uh, it starts for everybody, I think. Um, somehow your name ends up on a list of, of musicians who can, you know, hopefully still stand up straight and sing their songs. And, um, and if they figure out your work within the framework framework of the Ringo Starr All-Star Band, you get a call. And that's what happened to me in 2003. I got a call saying that I want to go out with Ringo. And I did, I only did, I did one tour then. And then I didn't, I did a television show with him after that. But then I didn't get asked back until 2008. And I did it in 2008. Then I, I didn't do it for a decade. And then I've done it since 2018. So I guess you just, um, uh, he used to he used to switch the bands up all the time, and now I think he tends to like if if a band works, he tends to uh, to keep that and, and rather than uh, change it up all the time. So, but you know, it's it's you're just happy to get the call, and so that, that's how it happened. But I mean, I don't know. I think that my name was you know given to him perhaps by um, you know the, the the people that he works with that put together the tours, and they um, you know you have to fit a certain. You have, to, you have to have had hits of your own. They have to be hits that will still work, and you still have to be able to play them and sing them. Now, he's on your latest album, Now and Evermore. How did you get him involved? Because that's, once again, that's pretty cool when you go, hey, Ringo Starr was on my album. Hey, what did you guys do? Yeah, you know, don't worry about it. You know, just sit down there. But how did that, how did that come up? Well, um, when I wrote the song Now and the Evermore, um, I... I had always imagined Ringo playing on it. Um, it's, it's a song that that has elements of my childhood in it, and it was a pandemic song, you know. But it was it was one of those songs where you were sitting around, 
you know, contemplating uh, mortality during the pandemic and thinking, well, you know, it's when a lot of people were dying, quite frankly, before they had the vaccines. And and so I, I, I was just thinking about my upbringing, my parents. And of course, whenever I think about my upbringing in a music shop, I always think about the Beatles because they were so much a part of my childhood. And so um, I had the little song on my iPhone and there's a little, I had this little uh, music app and it had a little drum kit, a little icon drum kit. And when I, would, when I would hit the drum kit, it just plays along with you. It just gives you a, you know, a, a groove to that um, plays along with your little song idea. And it sounded like Ringo, of course, you know. So I, so I always imagined that uh, I always imagined him playing on it. So um, I just asked him, I, you know, I finished the song and I just said, "Would you, would you play on this song?" And he just said, "You know, yeah, yeah, send it over." So, <laughs> so how- yeah, and 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 it's 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 wonderful to have. Uh, an album out uh, with uh, where the first thing you hear on the record is is a is an iconic drum fill by by Ringo. Now I know when you wrote the album, it was during the pandemic. Where were you at when the pandemic happened? Were you on tour? Because I talked to a lot of musicians. They were on tour and they said, "Ah, you know what? It's, it's only going to last for you know a month." And then they go, "Holy crap! It's lasting for a while." What was your what's your pandemic story? And did it really drive your? Did it help your writing creativity? Well, I was in, uh, I think I was in uh, uh, Fort Collins in uh, Colorado, and I was, I just, I was about a couple of weeks into a solo tour, like the one that you saw. Actually, the one that you saw was, was that tour. That was supposed to be that tour. So um, I went home. They just canceled all the gigs, and so I went home. And um, I felt, I felt, you know, very good about being home because I didn't really want to be, uh, you know, risking uh, risking going out there and and uh, and plus you didn't really have a choice the, the gate got cancelled because no one wanted to go out to shows and so forth so i went home and i i quite felt a little guilty about how good i felt about being going home about going home because i had all these uh, song ideas and i wanted to work on a record and so uh, i don't know whether it helped the process or not but the one thing that i did have was more time because normally when i'm home i'm only there for a few weeks and then i go back out on the road so a lot of the ideas, you just kind of—it's a stop and start process. But this time around, I had, I had time to really, um, you know, sometimes let ideas uh, marinate for a little while and go back to them. And um, so I, I, I really enjoyed being home. To be actually, I, to be honest, and I was very lucky because, you know, I could stay home. I was, I was fortunate in that sense. Like, uh, not like so many other people. So um, I did a, I did a couple of albums in that time. Uh, you know, wrote a lot of songs and. Um, I did a covers record, and then I did this you know, now in the Evermore album. So, so yeah, it was, um, and I just stayed at home with uh, you know with my wife and dog, and and we just uh, enjoyed our time together, uh, which was a very rare thing, you know. Now, how do you keep this this writing up? You've done like fifteen solo albums. It's not like you know, it's it's something that most people they have, they have five albums in them. I mean, do you just wake up every day and sit down and write, or do you sit there and when something strikes you, you sit down and write it? How, what's your writing process? Well, it depends where I am, where I am, but uh, and it's a lot of a lot of different uh, uh, things. But 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 primarily, I um, I usually try and put myself into the situation where. Uh, there's the possibility that something might might an idea might pop up, you know. So, so I'll go down to the studio and I, and I won't turn on the machines or anything, but I'll just sit there and maybe um, play a little guitar, or, or I will, you know, try and practice something that is perhaps not in my wheelhouse of what I can play, which which is a lot. <laughs> so I I try and. Um, I'll go down a different path. There's lots of there's lots of online um, guitar tuition and so forth. You can just, which I still do, and sometimes I just go down down a different, you know, play a few chords that I'm not really, uh, you know, too familiar with. And and if you're playing the guitar and you're sitting there and you're just not really uh, consciously thinking about um, writing a song, often there that's where ideas pop up, or you're just you're in that you're in that particular space where you're not um, you're not uh, on the telephone. You're not checking this, checking that. Um, I, I find that to be useful, and um, 
yeah, just being just being in a space for like letting yourself be in that kind of space for three or four hours, I find is is, is a good thing. And then you just sometimes you're out uh, and you get little ideas. Um, uh, the, I mean, the phone is terribly useful uh, nowadays because you can just get a light, an idea and you just bang, it's there, and it's that's the, that's the time to do it is to record the idea. I used to just get ideas and I would remember them, but I don't remember them anymore, so I have to record them. I, you know, I have to put them down so that they're they're there in some form. And then you go back and just listen to them all and um, see which one you think is, is uh, worth persevering with. And I have a friend that I write a lot of songs with, Michael, his name's Michael Georgiadis, and sometimes he comes over and and I just run ideas by him, and then he'll say, "Stop, stop, you know, stop. What's that? That's good." And then he go, "No, no, no, keep going, keep going." And then he go, "That's good, you know." And so you get, you get somebody else's, somebody else's uh, opinion about them. Now, when when did your love for music start? I mean, you've you've had a such a successful career. Were you, were you a little kid? Did you pick up guitars as a little kid, or or what was your course of action? Well, um, my mother and father had a music shop. And so I, I was in the store all the time from the age of five until I was 14. And my, my, my father was a, was a singer and a dancer on, on, you know, in vaudeville and in, in the theater when he was in the thirties. So, um, it was it passed down really from my parents and a lot of people in Scotland, um, can sing and, and, or, or that, that's what that, that used to be the form of entertainment for people was really home entertainment when home entertainment was people just singing songs to each other and so um he could do that and do it very well so i, I whatever i got i got from him and my mother too um and then of course um being surrounded by music just opened up that world and it was a world that i didn't completely understand uh, but it was a world that i knew that i wanted to belong to and especially, I mean, especially with the Beatles, but there were other bands like the Kinks and, and the Who and, and and so forth, and lots of other bands as well. But, but for me, there was the Beatles and then there was everybody else in a way. And so um, they just opened up a door of, you know, of imagination. I didn't really understand. Like when I first had Strawberry Fields, I thought, what is, you know, what is that world? What is that? You know, it, it was astonishing, you know. And uh, the same with um, with Good Vibrations, you know, I heard that song and I, I thought, I don't know where that music's made, but I want to I want to go there at some point in my life. So um, a whole lot of uh, but it was just, it was just a path that was in front of me. I didn't consciously think, oh, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a musician. Um, I just uh, never really particularly wanted to do anything else. Now, how did your life change when you moved to Australia? Because it's, I'm sure it was somewhat of culture shock. I just moved back. I grew up in New Jersey. I lived in L.A. for 20 odd years. I just moved back to New Jersey, and it was culture shock. Big difference between there. But how is it for you when you moved? Well, let me ask you this: What did it feel? What, what was it? What, how is it being back? Is it, is it okay being back in your in your home home state? I like it because I missed it. I was gone for 25 years. So when you come back and you're older and you're mature, and you see you bring so much more knowledge back just for the fact that you've been worldly. A lot of people I grew up with, I lived, grew up in a nice town, but a lot of them stayed here. And when you talk to them, you go, man, you know, I know you may be a doctor and a lawyer, but you know, I got, I got to live over in California and I got to live in San Diego. So for me, it, it was actually, it was good and I'm glad I'm back, but I, I would never traded me moving from LA back. I mean, I, I'm glad I lived in LA. So, um, but when you went to LA, it, it never felt like home to you. you never thought oh, I'm going to stay here. It, it, does, when you when you're back in uh, New Jersey, it feels like you're home again. It feels like you've come home. Yeah, because it's it's where I was here for my you know high school, college. But I know you you weren't right. You were, how old when you moved to Australia? I was 14, and so it was a it was a mind blower. It was fantastic in in, in many ways. I mean, I missed I missed certain things about Scotland because it was my home, and it's, it's also a great place. And um, that was like a that was that that became a, a snapshot in of my, in my memory that uh, and it became somewhat hallucinogenic almost or heavenly. I mean, I didn't go back for sixteen years, but when I arrived in Australia, it was um, um, so it's such an amazing place, especially when you're that when you're that age. Uh, you would 
you know, you would, for example, someone would say to me, what are you doing on Friday night? And I go, oh, nothing. Oh, let's, we're going to go down to surf, you know. So someone would come and pick you up and you know, 16 years old or something, and, and they had a car, you know. I mean, you don't have a car in Scotland until you're about 36, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so, and so, and they would pick you up and you'd drive down to the, drive down to the ocean. And, or you'd go down to the ocean in the back of someone's motorbike and you'd, you know, you'd sleep on the beach. It was like, who does that? You know, it was, it was really a, a much, um, or it, it might have been illusory, but it, it was a much freer place to live. Uh, there was lots, much less uh, social entrenchment than there was uh, where, I, where I grew up in Scotland. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was, there were so many other things. And there was a lot of people playing music and... Um, it was a pretty joyous thing. I remember. I still, I still have that feeling of when I first arrived. I can still taste it and, and smell it and, and feel it uh, because it was such a, it was such a, uh, had such an important, it was uh, such an important event of that year. You know, traveling to the other side of the world. I mean, the other thing that happened was that Sergeant Pepper got released, and so there were the two things that I remember in June of '67. Uh, was that that album got released and I arrived in Australia. Uh, they are the two biggest memories from that time. Now, as you're in Australia, how does how does Minute Work form? Because, you know, I, that's how I thought. I mean, I remember seeing you, and I got to say, I have a Lazy Eye also, and I know your record company is called Lazy Eye Records, and I was like, when yeah. I would see the videos, I go, all right, he's on TV, I can do that, and it always made me feel good. But uh, how, did, how did Minute Work uh, form? Uh, well, I um, I first started to try and put put a. I always wanted to have a. I always wanted to have a band. I always wanted to have a a, a successful band. I always wanted to have a, a a band that could have success internationally. I don't know why that was important to me, but it always was important to me. Um, and so um, I started dreaming about it. You know, probably when I was fourteen years old. But um, I I first started kind of trying to put together something around 1973 and of course that didn't work too well i had a i had a band and it, it, i rehearsed it for ages and it didn't really work and so i i um I, I dropped out of that band and then i got a letter from the university saying that i could go back to school uh, which pleased my parents and so i figured i'd go back to school i'd go to university and they from there i could kind of plot and, and scheme and try and figure out how i could you know put this together so that's what I did I mean I did a, an arts degree which is you know virtually useless really but it was a it was a great experience and during that time at university I met really important people um the drummer in the band Jerry who became the drummer in Men at Work and my man uh, guy Russell who became the manager of the band I met at university and I could write songs I was writing a lot of songs then and trying to figure out how to do this and and I'd met Ron Stryker the other guitar player in the band uh, just before um as I finished university, so, and I was going off to do a musical, and so I did that, and I said, when I come back, we should work together. So he said, okay. So I came back in the middle of, I think it was the uh, beginning of 78, and Ron and I started working together as an acoustic duo, and we started to write songs. We wrote Down Under, and we wrote a bunch of other songs, before Men at Work existed. And then um, um, Jerry joined us, the drummer joined us, so we were a three-piece for a minute, and Greg had been a friend of since 72, and... Uh, and so I, I asked him to join the band, and he was he was finishing college, a music degree, and um, and he joined us, and then we were four piece, and then it was somewhat incomplete because Ron was playing bass, and so Ron switched back to switched to lead guitar, and uh, John Reese was a friend of Jerry's, and so he asked him, and so in the course of about two or three months over the over the winter of of uh, of 79 which is basically the summer here but through uh from say july i think it was through through uh, september october uh, the, the band was formed and then in 79 and then we just we were off and running we had we had you know quite a lot of songs to play and we were writing songs and, and then i uh, interestingly i think uh, i had a band so that was a great vehicle uh, for for the songs and so i would write a song on a tuesday and then you could take it to the band You'd rehearse it and you would play it on Tuesday night, you know, so it was, it was a very immediate, music was quite immediate. And we're a much more of a, we're a, a jam band in a lot of ways too. We would kind of stretch out ideas, uh, which you probably couldn't, was not really particularly, um, you wouldn't want to record them that way, 
but live it really worked well and so um and so that's how it formed and we just we had a very strong live following and we never we didn't really have any record company interest until um for two years so we played five or six nights a week for two years before um we were spotted by um cbs records which became sony and uh, an a r guy from there and and coincidentally he was um hosting an american record producer peter mckeon who was out in australia at that time and he saw the band and he really wanted to produce the band and so that's what happened it was great for us because he he really knew what what he was doing in the studio which which we didn't so um that was very fortunate he uh he whipped the songs into shape and um you know the first the first uh the two albums that we did uh with him uh became you know very successful what is that like I mean, you know, you guys, you can't, for, for two years, you can't get a record deal. Then I know you get a record deal and you go number one in Australia and New Zealand, you went number one there. And then all of a sudden you get over to America and you just blow up. I mean, is it a little of the, ha you guys didn't sign us, you know, or is it just like, okay, we're going to take this and uh, run with it. I mean, what is it like for, uh, to start getting that major success? Because the first album was huge. Yeah, no, we never really, I never felt any particular uh resentment towards anyone because they didn't because they didn't um sign us um you know people either people either get it or they don't the, the thing that um the thing that i the thing that i recognized and i think the whole, i think the band recognized was that we had this ever increasing live audience and you can't you can't um contrive that you know people either come and see you playing live or they don't and so we would we had ever increasing uh audiences and they would spill out into the street and we would have to get a bigger place to play and we would go and play there and um and people that would come and see us play it's hey, look it's an old story it very rarely does just do record companies you know off straight off the bat recognize if a band's got potential it usually comes you usually have to do a lot of the work yourself, you know. And I think that what was different about uh, McKeon, the, the producer, and, and, and Peter Carpenter, the guy who signed the band, was they recognized not only um, what the songs were, but what the songs could be. Um, you know, in, in a, dare I say, in a more, in a more commercial uh, sense, um, it's, a terrible, it's a terrible word to use, but what I mean by that is, I'll give you an example. Um, who can it be now? For example, the, the saxophone line where we used to play it live, it never used to happen until halfway through the song, which was great when you're playing live because everyone's drinking and they're just kind of feeling this groove. And then all of a sudden, the saxophone line kicks in. But uh, you know, as McKeon said when he was producing the record, he said, you know, you've got to put that sax hook up in front of the song because no radio programmer is going to wait for two minutes before. The saxophone line comes in, so you know you got it's got to be immediate. So there were things like that that he did, that was really just um, whipping the songs into shape. I would say to give them a, to give them the best chance of being noticed. You know, um, but it was a. It, it sounds arrogant in a way, but um, I, you know, I really accepted the the success we had because in a way I expected it because I could sense it. I could sense it by the excitement of the audiences that would come and see us. They kind of knew what was going to happen in a way. And uh, and that's what happened all over the world. It was just one of those things that you thought, oh, I'm not really in control of this. You know, this is, this is happening, uh, you know, because of me, but it's also happening to me. You know, you just go, oh, this is, this is going to, this is going to break. This is going to be huge. And you just have to try it you know, stay on the board and not fall off for as long as you can. Turns out we didn't really stay on, stay on the board for all that long, you know, but that's okay. That's just, we had a, we had a, a run for four years and it was, you know, extraordinarily successful. And then, and then, it, then it went away. Then it was done, you know, now, but a the, yeah, no, a lot of us in America, you know, we, we got turned on to you by MTV with the first two videos, who can it be now? And down under, which were completely, completely different videos. But tell me about the shooting of those videos, because, you know, after that, like the videos, musicians tell me they, they end up these videos that have like a $300,000 budget. Of course, it's coming out of their pocket. But what was the shooting of those videos like? Because because they're we all remember them, but they're not they're not over. They're not overdone. Um, I'm just 
suddenly realizing, is this light bothering you? No, I'm fine. Weird. Um, they cost five, I think, who can it be now cost $5,000 and, and down under cost $6,000, which was, you know, it was still, it was still $5,000 and $6,000 <laughs> at the time. We had to, you know, we had to argue quite a lot to get that extra, that extra thousand dollars for down under. Um, but I think that what happened with us was um, because there was such a lack of money to make the videos uh, and people were making videos in Australia. That, that was quite a, you know, a thing that people did as well as in the UK. I think that America was really a kind of a little bit, you know, behind the times in that sense, because people weren't really doing that all that much in the, in the US at that point. So, um, so we, uh, we just used to have to, we had to find an interesting location and, um, you know, shoot something interesting uh, or as interesting as we could. And so that's why I think that there was, you know, the personality of the band, uh, you know, whether you like the personality of the band or not is neither here nor there, but, but there was in fact, um, the personal personality of the band did come through. So you either responded to that or you didn't. And, um, and I think that that's why people liked them because they were they could they could see who you were in a sense. There you know there wasn't the kind of you know the the stiletto on the rose shot or something, which is you know just um, you know other videos which were, were maybe um, with a higher production a higher production value. We didn't really have much of that because we didn't have the money. So we shot on film though, so they did look good. And I think that probably it would be fair to say that as as the videos got more expensive, um, they, they got less interesting. Although I think that It's a Mistake is a really particularly good video because we used a, a lot of claymation in that, which was really cool. And um, and we exploited the fact that there was a, um, a horrible, horrible fire down in Australia at the time, a, a bushfire that was called Ash Wednesday. And it had finished, like it had, it had burnt itself out but it was still smoldering. And so, and we were trying to create this war zone, which is, you know, difficult to do if you don't have a lot of money. So we just drove down there and, you know, shot in these blackened, blackened trees. And it did, it looked completely like a war zone. So that was a, that was a, uh, an unfortunate thing that, uh, that there was such a horrendous fire, but it was, it was good for us because we, we got down there and, and we didn't have to have any smoke machines. There was still smoke filtering through the trees. Now, what was it like when you came to America? Was it your first time visiting America when you guys came over here or had you been to America before? Oh, no, it was, it was our first time. Yeah, we came over here. I think the first time we came here was to do the Grammys, actually, which, which where we, I'm pretty sure that was the first time we came was to, um, was to do the Grammys. Um, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think I think that's the case. We we came over here and opened up for Fleetwood Mac. was was the first tour we had, but I think that was after the Grammys. But to be honest, I'm not really sure. Um, but um, my memory of that, my memory of the Grammys is um, not so much that we won for best new artist, but what I remember more than anything was. Um, and that our dressing room was next to Miles Davis, which was next to Lena Horne, which was next to Ella Fitzgerald, which was next to Jerry Lee Lewis, which was next to Ray Charles, which was next to Little Richard. And so we were just in this line of dressing rooms, and I was just amazed. I was just walking down the corridor the whole time, just trying to try, try to get a glimpse of these people. It was incredible, you know, just incredible. That's what I remember more than anything, and uh, or bumping into um, uh, Donald Fagan and... and um, and uh, Walter Egan, and uh, yeah, Walt and Walter from from Steely Dan, and um, and have them say that they liked our band. That was that was unbelievable, you know. So um, it was it was quite quite extraordinary. And then we when we opened up for Fleetwood Mac, we only had Who Can It Be Now, um, which people knew kind of, um, but it started to climb the charts, and then. By the time we'd finished the three-month tour, we, we were, I think we were number three. And then we got booked on Saturday Night Live, and we did Saturday Night Live on the, on the Saturday, and then on the Monday went to number one. So that was a pretty pretty heady time for, for my old band. 
Now, what was the US Festival like? You played that. That was a huge. That's a huge uh, venue. What was? I mean, is that's like the biggest band people? That's the biggest crowd people will probably see. I mean, what was that like when you guys played that? Well, it was incredible. As you say, it was 150,000 people or something. And I think the night we were on Stray Cats and I think I think The Clash and, and our band, I think, that's, I think that's who was on. And um, But um, honestly, from a personal uh, standpoint, um, it wasn't a particularly happy band by that point. So it was a little bit, it's a little bit sad for me, you know, um, it was, I think it was the tail end of the of the last American tour we did, the end of 83, I think it was. And um, it should have been amazing, you know, the whole thing. And it was to a degree, but uh, after that tour, the band was done, really. So, um, uh, you know, by the time we really were touring the States uh, in 1983, it was, it was um, plain to great crowds and very, very enthusiastic crowds and so forth. But it was, it was the communication between the band was, was pretty poor. So it was a bit sad. Now I got to ask you, I posted on Facebook a few weeks ago. I had said, you know, at least three times a week, listen to the song Overkill. Cause I love that song. And you're surprised. Everyone was like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, but where did that song come from? Cause I always talk to people, where, where did Overkill come from? Because it's just such a great song and just the whole the guitar break and everything it's just it, to me it's a masterpiece but where what was the where does did that come from one night you were just sitting there and you wrote it you were you know what, tell me the story behind that song yeah i was it was in st kilda where i had a little apartment and um i think that it was a combination of a couple of ideas lyrically i think that one idea was that um the idea of um of diving in too deep was that feeling you had of, of wanting to have this success, uh, wanting, you know, really having great ambition and then achieving it and then thinking, oh, realizing that this is in fact going to happen and uh, making the choice, okay, I've got to just dive in head first and, and knowing that things were never going to be the same, you know, uh, even just walking down the street wasn't going to be the same. You don't have the same level of anonymity. Uh, everything is different. The, the external world uh, treats you in a different fashion. So you have to be prepared for that. Um, the other idea that possibly was there was my increasing realization that I was probably an alcoholic. And um, that was the, that was the, I think they were the ghosts that I was trying to deal with. And the demons that I was trying to deal with at the time were, where the um, the, pre the depressive state that that happens through uh, through alcohol abuse or any kind of any kind of abuse really, but um, I didn't really want to uh, accept or believe that I probably was uh, you know drinking too much you know but I was, and it took me you know probably took me about seven or eight years after that to finally stop, but I think that looking back on it I didn't really think about that at the time but I think that that's probably you know what I was, what I was uh, trying to express that was that was happening internally, but musically I think it's interesting. I think that there's, um, you know, there's, there's a there's a haunting quality to the chords that just the it's it's simple, and yet the if you want to call it the chorus, but no, the kind of B section of the song goes to a couple of interesting places, and I think it seems to um, I don't know how to it just, it touches people in a certain way. It it, it gets in there, you know, and. You can't really plan for that in a way. It's, it either happens or it doesn't. So I'm just grateful that that people responded to the song in such a in such a uh, in such a way that um, so they get something from it. Um, and it's and, and it's it, it seems to have continued to this day, which I'm you know which I'm happy about. And you know, the song still stands up, I think, and it, and it morphs and changes, but essentially it's. Um, it's it's structure. It's it's a very, you know. I I think that I think that songs that 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 have um, that have legs, if you like, you know, they usually have strong foundations, um, you know, both lyrically and musically. So um, 
I was glad about that one. I mean, I, it's funny because when I took it to the band, I'd written it. I was very excited about it. I took it to the band and I really got no reaction from them. <laughs> so I was a bit uh, deflated by that. And everyone else went to lunch. And so I thought, oh, I'll just record it myself. So we were in this little rehearsal studio. So I just recorded it myself. I recorded the drums, the bass, and the guitars and vocals. And, and I thought, yeah, yeah, I was right. It is a good song. And so then... Um, you know, they got more excited about it as time went on. Now, how did it end up in Scrubs? Because that's, you know, and that, that clip's great, but I know, you know, with Zach Braff, I believe, had played some of your music in Garden State. But how did it end up from being a great song to being in Scrubs, where you're in the whole scene? So, you know, if you didn't already have your SAG card, I'm sure you got it that then. But uh, how did it end up with Scrubs? Well, Zach Braff uh, was... Um, I met him before he was in before he was in Scrubs, and um, you know he said to me, oh, "I'll see if I can get your, some of your songs on the show." And, and so he did. You know, he used "Beautiful World" and a couple of other songs, but he played them for Bill Lawrence, um, and he, I think he played the acoustic version of "Overkill" for Bill Lawrence. And he was the creator of Scrubs, and he got uh, he got very excited about it. Became a little obsessed about it actually, and, and wrote that episode, which was called "My Overkill." Um, and um, so that's how it got on there. He just uh, he loved the song. He loved that version of it. And so they asked me to be on it. And so that, that's how that that happened. And I have to say, you know, I have a great um, you know debt of gratitude for, to both those guys for for exposing uh, me and in in uh, in that television show because you know I was I was I had a career, but I it was pretty much you know very under the radar. I would go out and play live, and I would you know attract audiences but they weren't huge audiences and and after after i was in scrubs it, it that audience increased exponentially because of that because that show was a cool show to be involved with and um it was a particularly good episode of of, of the show i think now when men at work broke up you know you went on a solo career what is that like when you're you know because you've had the career with the band was were you scared at first or did you say you know i've written a lot of music i'm a i'm a i'm I'm talented. I mean, what was it like when you first started sitting there recording that first solo album? Because you probably were used to your other guys, your friends that you played with. What is it like when you went on your own? Well, I was pretty happy to be on my own, actually. Uh, truth be told, because um, I was, I was, I, I was sick. You know, I didn't want to be in a band anymore. In in when I was making Looking for Jack, which was the first album that I made after after Men at Work. Um, I made it in England with a great record producer called Robin Miller. And that was really, I was still kind of, you know, coming out of the Men at Work thing. It was, I think it was 19, 1980. Well, I can't remember what it was. I think it was either 1985 or 1986. I think I recorded that album in England. And uh, it was a lovely record. There's lots of good things on that record. And I think that Robin, I mean, he's told me since he thought it was going to be a Men at Work record, but uh, I, it was, you know, and it, it came out under the title of Colin James Hay, which was probably a mistake, you know, because I was, I think I was trying to establish myself as being a different entity from, from who I was in Men at Work. But ultimately, I, ultimately, I think it was a mistake. I should have just either, you know, called it, called it you know, Colin Hay, because that was a simpler approach. So it seemed to confuse people, I think. Um, but, um, and then I made, I had a little band called the Colin Hay Band and in, in, I went back to Australia. I got signed to MCA Records. Um, I got off uh, off Columbia and I went to MCA for a record, which was ultimately a mistake. Uh, but, you know, you don't, you, you don't realize it at the time. And I made one record for them and I had a little, I had a little band in Melbourne, uh, just myself, a drummer, bass player and, and a, fiddle and mandolin player and we made it we made an album called wayfaring sons which um which didn't do much either had a had a really massive hit brazil with one song and so we did rock and rio <coughs> i only did two shows um, that year i did one at the esplanade hotel and some to 150 people and one in rock and rio to 150,000 people they were the only two shows that i did on that tour and so then, then basically, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, make this story short, but I'm not doing a very good job. Um, after that, I, I had a choice. I could either go back to Australia and kind of figure out what to do next. And I, I was about to be dropped by MCA Records. Or I could just stay in Los Angeles. So I decided just to stay. 
And that was when it was that was when the transition happened between going, oh, I, I see, I'm, I'm really on my own now. So I just kind of thought, okay, I'm by myself. I didn't have a record label. I didn't have any any management to, to speak of, and I didn't have an agent. And I couldn't I couldn't really get any interest in, in me whatsoever. So I just started going out on the road, and that's what I did um, for 13 years before I had any interest from uh, from any record label or, or any you know pro, dare I say proper record label um, as an independent label in Nashville called Compass Records, and so they started releasing my stuff in 2003. But I was on my own, pretty much touring um, for 13 years or so, and. Um, and so I've been with I've been working with Compass for you know since then they're an independent record label and you know you know they're a small label and they they have an infrastructure at least so people know where they can where they can buy the records if if they want to and uh, and I just have this little you know the model which is what I, which is what it didn't I don't really think it was I didn't you know recognize it as a model so to speak but. But it really is what a lot of people do now is they, they make records and they, they go out and perform them and, and uh, you know, ply their, ply their wares uh, wherever they travel and, and sell records at shows and try and get people to consume their music in, in, in whatever ways that people do these days. So that's really what I've been doing for the last 20-odd years, uh, 20 or 25 years, is um, making records and uh, going out and playing them. Now, when did you bring the storytelling in? Because that's what I really, I mean, I really enjoyed the show because my background, I did stand-up comedy on the road for eight years. When I was watching you, you had timing. I mean, you know, you know a lot of comics, you mean, don't have any timing. But you had really good stories. At what point did that start, did you start putting that together? And when did you notice that people were really, really enjoying it? Because it's so much different. It's you, your guitars, and that's it. When did you decide to do that? Well, I didn't, it wasn't, again, it wasn't really, um, I think a lot of things happen, the best things happen often by, uh, by circumstance as opposed to design. And I, I was, um, when I started to play live in the early 90s, uh, hardly anyone was coming to the shows. There might be 40 people, 50 people in, in these rooms in, in kind of, you know, two or 300 capacity small rooms. But there was, you know, sometimes there were quarter, quarter full. And uh, I noticed that people were a little, they looked, uh, you know, embarrassed for me almost. Like, why is this guy doing this? You know, he doesn't have to do this. He was a big, famous rock star. Why is he, why is he in these small rooms playing? And to be honest, I didn't, I didn't really know myself uh, particularly. But it was a way of, it was just a way of, of, it was something that I, that I knew I could do. I knew that I could play a few songs and sing. And so what I started to do was, because it was quite a small room, it seemed like almost like a lounge room. Uh, um, feeling so I just started to tell people what had happened to me you know and as I did that I noticed that people uh, would lean a little closer and they they wanted to to know about those kinds of things and so it became almost conspiratorial with, between you know myself and the audience it became, became almost a little secret you know that people would tell other people people would tell their friends oh you got to go and see this guy because you know he does this and he does that. And then after a little while, I kind of realized uh, that, you know, people want to, if they come and see you, they don't want to, you know, that they weren't, see, these weren't really necessarily men at work fans. They weren't people who were just coming to hear Down Under. You know, there were people who were coming because they wanted to, they wanted to receive something from you. They, maybe they didn't even know what it was. But after a little while, I realized that they wanted to, they wanted you to tell them something about themselves almost, you know, because we all suffer. We all have these, you know, peaks and valleys, if you like, which is, you know, just to quote myself, but, but, um, and we're all trying to figure out, you know, how to make sense of, of being alive. And so this was my way of doing it. This was, you know, get up getting up on the stage was my way of trying to, trying to even, you know, deal with the fact that, that I wasn't, that I wasn't that guy anymore. I didn't have huge commercial success. I wasn't having number one hits. This is this is my this is my life now, you know. And then I started to realize that, you know, this is probably this is this yeah, at first I was trying to use it, do it as an interim thing, you know, where I thought, well I'll eventually get off of the big deal and I'll get back to those lofty peaks again of superstardom. But then I realized, well no, this is this is actually what I'm supposed to do. This is my this is my my place, if you like. Um, 
And then I just kind of settled into it. And I thought, this is, this is a pretty good life. You know, I get to go out on the road. I get to travel to different places. I get to play music for people. And they love it. They appreciate it. They buy the records. They tell their friends. They bring their family. And um, it's a it's a way. It's a good. It's a good. It's a good connection to other people, and therefore, you know, it's a good connection to myself. So I'm um, I'm pretty pretty grateful for that. I feel pretty lucky about it all. Well, you also, though, I mean, to add to all this career, you, you recorded an audio book of Aesop Fables. What what what, what did, were you a big kid of fables when you were a fan? I mean, how'd that happen? No, just a guy contacted me, Tom Graves. He lives in Memphis, and he, he just thought that I had a good voice for it. So he had this idea and asked me if I would come and do it. So I did it Yeah, so a few years ago now. Now, you have, you're have you having a tour uh, with John Waite and Rick Springfield with Men at Work. Um, that's going to be great because I'm an 80s guy. And 80s crowds, you know, and you know, 80s crowds have a certain energy. You know, even though we're getting, we're past 50 now. I went to a college reunion this weekend and I, I, there was three bands and it was a 70s and 80s reunion and everyone had the energy. Of course, I know there's probably a lot of hangovers the next morning because people thought they were 21 still. But how did this 80s, uh, how did the 80s, this, this concert tour come together? I think it came through, uh, they came through Rick, uh, Rick's manager, um, contacted my agent and my booking agent and just asked me if I'd be interested in doing a double a double bill with um, with Rick and then um, and then they said oh maybe we can get uh, John involved too so and I, I know John a little bit so that seemed like a a great um, a great combination of of, uh, of songs and voices and so uh, so yeah I think I think it should be good that just that was just how it came it was a simple thing and I think they they do these things where they test the market and they see whether there's interest and it's, it seemed like there was so it's you know it's strength in numbers I think you know and I haven't really done many tours as men at work you know and it's just my LA based band it's, you know I, I make no uh, make no um, uh, there's no secret about the fact that it's just me I'm the only original person in the band and then the rest of the guys are, are I have you know three Cubans and uh, and uh, uh, Sheila Gonzalez plays um, a Guatemalan descent plays saxophone and keyboards and my wife Cecilia sings with me and plays percussion so it's um uh, it's my LA my LA band that I work with who are fantastic and we just play a we play a whole you know men at work set and it's uh, it's very cool it's, it, I like to do it occasionally because then it's still uh, the novelty's still there of it's it's um. And people really love it, and you do a tour, and then you, you know, I go back to my my regular life. Well, Lee, that's great because it's funny when you talk about it. I remember I saw you at the Starlight Bowl in Burbank years ago. It was with your wife, open for you, I believe, and then she was on stage with you. I remember. Yeah, I she, she had the, the, the wild the wild plans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so how'd you meet yeah. her? How'd you meet her? She's a, she's a fellow musician. Were you on the road, or because this is cool that you're both musicians, and now I know she helped yeah. you produce some stuff. How did you guys meet? Um, well, I originally met her in New York in 1985, but that was just a very brief meeting. I was mixing the third Men at Work album, actually, in 1985. And, um, but I just met her in the studio, but that was only for, for a little while. Um, she was in the studio, uh, another, another, part of the, another part of the studio working. And, um, and then I didn't see her again. I met her again in 1993. I'd moved to the United States, and I was living in Topanga, which is where I still live. And um, she was on the bill. I was. We were. We were doing a benefit together, and I. I was on first, and then she was going to close the show. And so um, we had a mutual lawyer. We had a lawyer who, who worked for both her and and me. So he introduced us, and I stayed and watched her band. And that's where I met her, but we didn't, uh, you know, get together, so to speak, uh, for another another six years. But I would take people to see her band, and, and I knew her uh, for the for you know five or six years or so. And I always really liked her. I always liked I always liked Cecilia. Um, I would bump into her now and again in different places, and um, yeah, I, I really liked her a lot. And then and then um, around '99, we just uh, we I saw her in a coffee coffee shop and exchange numbers and uh we started going out and then we ended up you know getting married in 2000 2002 so and it, it's um it's a beautiful thing you know we, we hang we hang together pretty well you know it's it's all about that i think it's just 
it's all about being able to spend a lot of time together and still um, and still like each other, you know. Well, that's awesome. I want to thank you for coming on. Do me a favor, though. Before you go, give me a good give give my listeners a good Colin Hay story because you and you can say the c word. You told that story of when you're at the band and the guy kept yelling for you to play that song. Just tell me one or two really good stories, and we'll get you out of here because you are such a master storyteller, and your stuff's funny. Well, it's a little difficult, you know. It's a little difficult to tell stories just like. You know, just uh, just cold like this, you know. But um, but um, uh, you know, the the one that springs to mind is just really when, seeing as I'm playing in Ringo's band, you know, I was before we went on tour with Ringo, um, I went down to um, to Ringo's place to take some tour photographs for the tour book. And Steve Lukather was there, and uh, it was just me and Steve and uh, Ringo and the photographer. And I had I took my vinyl, my vinyl copy of of uh, I just don't know what to do with myself down there. And I took a couple of copies, and I, I, I gave one I, was, I gave one to Steve to look at. I said, I've done this covers record, and he had it in his hand. He said, Oh, that's cool, man. That's really great. Why are you doing that song? And, and Ringo came over, and he said, oh, What you got there? What you got there? And I said, um, oh, it's my covers record, you know? And he's, oh, give us a look. And so he, he grabbed the record. He's going, oh, you're doing that song? Yeah, great. Oh, you're doing that song? Oh, I love that song. Yeah, uh, really good. Oh, you're doing a couple of our songs? Yeah, great, really good. I said, do you want to have that record? He goes, uh, not really. <laughs> well, I want to thank you. People, the website. See, I told you. I, I told you it's difficult to no, do. No, I you, know. It yeah, was good, yeah. though. It is funny. I've heard, I heard you do it live. I, I, it's a good story. It's, you know, because you, and you do have a certain, have you ever done stand-up? Have you ever, like, actually tried stand-up comedy? No. Okay, well, you should, because you're very funny. But people, go to the website, colinhay.com. He's, uh, you can see, all oh, he's so busy. He has so much stuff going. Go by his latest album now and evermore. It's very good. It's, go back. He has like so many solo albums. Just go listen to him, buy him, send him money. Get the guy, get get him money. That's always good. So people, go check him out. Uh, follow up on Ringo's Tars coming around and the summer tour. Uh, go to my website. Check out my show, uh, coopertalk.net. You can find over 900 episodes. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter's at coopertalk. Instagram at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.